This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. For thousands of generations, the gunslingers were knights. Sworn to protect us from the coming of the dark. Roland DeShane, the last gunslinger, a member of a knightly order, is locked in an eternal battle with the man in black in his quest to reach the Dark Tower. The tower protects both our worlds. If it falls, hell will be unleashed. DeShane is the protagonist of Stephen King's magnum opus, the Dark Tower series and the movie. In 2017, King was sued by the copyright holder of a 1970s comic book, The Rook, for ripping off elements of its hero to create his famous gunslinger. Four years later, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has affirmed a lower court ruling tossing out the lawsuit. Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Tell us about the issue here, Terry. June, the issue revolves around two different literary works. Bill Dubay in the late 70s and 80s wrote a comic book series called The Rook with a character as the hero of those comics by the name of Reston Dane, who traveled through time and fought various villains. Stephen King published a series of novels starting around 1982 going into 2010 called the Dark Tower series, which featured a anti-hero by the name of Roland Duchesne. And he also time-traveled, but as part of a quest to find this dark tower that is in the title of the work. And based upon certain broad similarities between the two characters, the nephew of the now deceased Bill Dubay, author of the work, brought a copyright infringement lawsuit against Stephen King, his publisher, and various media companies based on alleged infringement of this Reston Dane character in the Rook by Stephen King and his character, Roland DeShane. Seems like it took a while to bring this lawsuit. 35 years, to <laughs> be exact. And I certainly, as a longtime observer of copyright litigation, always wonder when I see that sort of lengthy delay in bringing an infringement lawsuit. Certainly you would have thought, given the prominence of Stephen King's works in general and the Dark Tower series of novels in particular, that Bill Dubay, the actual creator of the Rook comic book series, would during his lifetime have noticed that there were these similarities. And it's only after his death when, in effect, his inheritors sort of come up with this alleged similarity. The Copyright Act provides, believe it or not, June, for only a three-year statute of limitations. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court in the Raging Bull case, the movie a couple of years ago, sort of eviscerated that three-year statute of limitations by saying, well, it depends upon when the actual discovery of the infringement occurs and various other things that have sort of thrown the statute of limitations for copyright infringement into disarray. So according to the plaintiffs here, there are a lot of similarities between the main characters, their knightly heritage, traveling back in time to save a boy who becomes a gunslinger, birds as companions, interaction with towers, Western attire, fictionalized Alamo history, and knife wielding. So that sounds like a lot when you sort of add it up. Yeah, it sure does on its face. The important thing to remember about this case is that the only infringement allegations are 
relate it to taking the character of Reston Dane from the Rook and essentially creating a substantially similar character called Roland Deschain in the Dark Tower series novel. So it's limited to the issue, what we call literary character copyright. And in order to obtain a copyright in a literary character, you have to go beyond sort of broad images that would be typically associated with, for example, any World War II American hero fighting in Europe. He would be fighting Germans. He would be fighting Nazis. You would see swastikas, etc. It's got to be something far more specific to earn you a copyright in a character. And the other part of it is that the courts always say this, and this court, the 11th Circuit said it here, is you got to ignore sort of random similarities. The fact that they both carry a knife is truly irrelevant. And indeed, the court's caution, you can't just look at a series of individual, perhaps coincidental similarities. you got to look at the overall totality of the element, see what the overall impression or image that's conveyed by each competing character. And here it seems as if the image and the impression conveyed are totally different. Duchesne is really a very dark character. The 11th Circuit went so far as to characterize him as an anti-hero, which I believe is accurate from having read many of these works myself. He is somebody who's not particularly moral. He is perfectly content sacrificing his allies in pursuit of his goals. And he's a very introspective character. He worries about how much evil he has done. He suffers quite a bit through the series of these novels. And the quest to find the dark power, which is somehow related to the time-space continuum, is also played out in an interior quest to sort of redeem himself and become a better person. Now, you contrast that with the character in the Rook, Reston Dane, who is almost, in pardon the pun, a comic book caricature of a typical hero. He's handsome. He's courageous. He always does the right thing. He fights them villains just sort of randomly, and yes, he does time travel to fight them, but it's just sort of a good versus evil. It's a very different image, the traditional American view of a literary hero versus the more modern anti-hero image that you see in The Dark Tower. Now, how important was it that King's manuscript for The Dark Tower predated the Rook's publication, and also, he started working on it, apparently, in 1970. Yes, and this is an important fact. The Rook comic book series, I should say the character first appeared in 1977 or so, and then became a recurring comic book series in the late 70s and early 80s. Whereas there was substantial proof that Stephen King at least was journaling about his character, Roland Deschain, and what would become the Dark Tower series of novels as early as 1970. The court was careful not to go off on that issue. That was not the strict basis of the ruling, and there's a good reason for that, because that would be an entirely fact-based determination. And facts have to be determined in federal court by a jury. And here, the district court decided the case on summary judgment before it got to a jury. And it did that and said it was entitled to decide it on summary judgment and not impanel a jury because as a matter of law, not fact, but as a matter of law, King and the other defendants were entitled to a judgment simply based on the lack of copyrightability of most of the supposedly infringing elements that were shared by the characters. 
Did the court consider some of the evidence that Stephen King put in then? I think he had uh, some notes from an assistant. So Stephen King and the defendants put in a phenomenal amount of evidence in support of its summary judgment motion. I, I think I saw at one point something like 44,000 pages. Now, this included each of the novels, obviously, and Stephen King tends to write long novels. But it also included then a summary of all those pages that was prepared by one of his assistants so that the court wouldn't have to read all 44,000 pages. The appellate court said that that was permissible under federal rules. Summaries of evidence, of complicated evidence, or voluminous evidence are always allowed in federal court. It's simply a way of helping a fact finder or the court um, get weighed through everything given their busy docket. More importantly, and what I found very interesting is that King and the defendants submitted an expert report by the author of the um, Back to the Future movie, who read all the works, and, you know, as an author himself, time-traveling characters gave his opinion that the characters weren't similar. And I found that sort of an interesting approach that is permitted in copyright cases at the summary judgment stage. Terry, what was the rationale of the 11th Circuit's decision? So, Jim, the principal rationale for the 11th Circuit's affirmation of district court was based on a finding that these several similar elements between the characters constituted nothing more than scenes off fair. Scenes off fair are not allowed to be copyrighted under our Copyright Act. They are essentially the sorts of common themes or characters or settings that are just indispensable to any treatment of a certain time period or type of event. So if you're doing a, a book about the, um, uh, the West uh, and how the West was won, you're going to have gunfighters. You're going to have everybody walking around with a Colt 45 on their hip. You're going to have people wearing cowboy hats. You're going to have dance hall girls. You're going to have saloons. And, and, and the fact that a work has any of those elements in it um, does not allow for those works to be copyrighted, um, for those elements to be copyrighted in the work. And, and, and those elements are free to be used by, by any um, creator um, who is doing a piece on, on the Western frontier days. And, and, and the court here, the 11th Circuit said, you know, you look at a lot of these purportedly similar elements and they're just common to, to what you, the use of knives. Well, lots of people use knives. You, you don't get a monopoly on a character using knives. Um, they they, they um, time travel. There are lots of characters who time travel. You don't get a monopoly um, through copyright law on, on time travel. Um, they, they, they wear Western garb. <laughs> That's only appropriate given the, 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 the type of tra- time traveling they're doing. You don't get a, a monopoly on, on wearing Western garb. And, and so each of the individual elements, and you, you, you mentioned this, there seem to be a lot of them, but when you actually take them apart, they are nothing more than sort of the common incidents of the scene that you would expect to see for these types of works. I don't know how many times Stephen King has been sued for copyright infringement. I mean, he's a best-selling author. And after the lower court ruling here, he asked for $1.7 million for fending off the litigation, saying copyright litigation isn't a lottery and he shouldn't be treated as a punching bag selling author. And after the initial, the lower court ruling here, he asked for $1.7 million in 2019 for fending off 
the litigation, saying copyright litigation isn't a lottery and he shouldn't be treated as a punching bag. It's true. And I have seen in other cases not involving Stephen King um, attempts to use the fact that you, you've been sued for copyright infringement in the past as some sort of evidence that you did it in the present. Um, the Ed Sheeran case, we're seeing that happen um, now in, in, in New York court. I, I think it, it should be entirely disregarded by court. Um, the fact that someone has been sued in the past and found not liable for infringement should be irrelevant. Um, I, I attribute this in general to the over litigious nature uh, of copyright these days, and more specifically to the great success and notoriety that Stephen King has obtained. Um, you know, as Jesse James used to say, we rob banks because that's where the money is. You know, um, <laughs> copyright plaintiffs tend to chase after um, authors and songwriters and other creators who have been successful. Uh, and who have um, managed through their hard work, innovation, and creativity um, to obtain you know, great amounts of money. Um, it makes no sense to go after uh, a purported infringer who has been unsuccessful and, and has no money to pay a judgment. Right. So do you know what happened to that? The, the way this typically works is that the district court um, will put off a decision on attorney's fees until the issue of liability is settled for once and for all. So knowing that this was going up to the 11th Circuit, um, I, I, I assume that the district court said, I'm not going to do any extra work on this. I'll wait to see uh, if the 11th Circuit affirms. Uh, and then the um, uh, motion for attorney's fees um, will be considered. The Copyright Act does expressly allow for an award of attorney's fees to a prevailing party um, uh, to the extent that the um, claim of copyright infringement or the manner in which the claim was prosecuted, litigated in court, uh, is somehow unreasonable, but it is in the discretion of the district court. And my own experience litigating these cases on behalf of defendants across the country is that, for whatever reason, district court judges tend to be reluctant to award attorney's fees in copyright cases unless it is an absolute fraud upon the court that's being perpetrated. Now, another point is, this is the 11th Circuit. When we've talked before about copyright cases, they're usually in the 2nd Circuit or the 9th Circuit. How did the 11th Circuit get in this? Now, that's a great question. Um, apparently, the um, nominal plaintiff, the nephew of the author, the rook, um, Eric Dubay, um, uh, is resident there. Um, copyright lawsuits um, can generally be brought. Most district courts in the nation, if the work is broadly distributed, and I'm sure Stephen King's um, Dark, Dark Tower series and the graphic uh, books that followed in the movie that followed were uh, distributed in Florida. And, and, and so you get this unusual circumstance. Um, as we've discussed in the past, um, the nature of the uh, industry that the copyright arises out of typically drives the locus for the lawsuit. So you see books and publishing industry heavily based in 
New York City, you see a lot of those cases there. You know, country Western um, and, and Motown and rap, you see often in the Sixth Circuit because both Nashville and Detroit are in that Sixth Circuit. And you say, see movies and, and other types of recordings often in Southern California, the Ninth Circuit, because that's where they're located. So this is very unusual. But I will say this, the Eleventh Circuit has uh, its history of copyright cases. It did not have to draw heavily upon the Second Circuit or Ninth Circuit law um, to render this decision, which is interesting in and of itself. Thanks, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Catton Nugent Rosenman. It's been dubbed the Patent Death Squad because it's invalidated more than 2,000 patents. And in a constitutional clash being closely watched by the nation's tech companies, at least five of the court's conservative justices seem to indicate they might curb the powers of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. Here are Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. These are multi-million, sometimes billion-dollar decisions being made not by someone uh, who's accountable in the usual way that the Appointments Clause uh, demands. And my question was focused on supervision. If the president disagrees with the decision or one of his uh, designees down the chain of dependence disagrees with the decision, there's no remedy that, that the president has, correct? Joining me is Susan Decker, Bloomberg News patent reporter. Susan, start by telling us about the patent death squad. So the patent death squad, as folks who don't like it call it, um, there was a sweeping overhaul of patent law back in 2011 that creates this specific adversarial procedure. So say, for instance, you get sued and you think that a patent shouldn't have been issued in the first place. You can fight in court, but you can also go back to the patent office and say, hey, patent office, you got it wrong. And some type of procedure has been around for many decades, but this is a specifically a trial. It was supposed to be an alternative to a trial. So it's much more formal. It's basically old reexamination, as they called it, on steroid. There's an initial review saying, yeah, we think we might have gotten something wrong. Then they have to do a trial and issue a decision within one year. So it's a very, very fast-track procedure. And because it's kind of self-selecting, they do have a very high, what they refer to as a kill rate meaning a patent or part of a patent is deemed invalid. How did this case involving the patent death squad get to the Supreme Court? So in this case, what happened was Arthrex, which is a patent owner, a longstanding battle with Smith & Nephew over medical devices, had one of its patents invalidated at the PTAB, it's called Patent Trial and Appeal Board. And they went to the federal circuit, the nation's top patent court, and they said, These people shouldn't have even been hearing these cases. If they're going to be judges that are tossing out already issued patents, then they should be presidentially appointed officers. They shouldn't be, you know, the patent office director appointing over 200 judges and them having the final say on these patents that we thought were already good to go. So the question is, are those judges constitutionally appointed? Are they, in fact, inferior officers, meaning that they work for the director and they're subject to his rules, or are they so independent and they have so much authority to invalidate patents that they are people that have to go through this Senate confirmation process, which, of course, is very lengthy, and there's over 200, so it would take a long time. So during the oral arguments, what kind of concerns or questions did you hear from the justices? Well, one of the things that seemed that they were kind of angling towards, yes, in fact, these are principal officers, that they should be presidentially appointed, but several of the justices that seemed to be leaning towards saying that this is unconstitutional seemed to also 
say, well, they don't set policy. And in fact, if you have their decisions reviewable by the patent office director, then that would solve the problem. That normally these judges would be considered inferior officers, except for this one role that they have on invalidating patents. And if you have the patent office director having the authority to overturn them, which he doesn't have right now, that that would solve the problem. So could they come up with a very narrow finding that would rule, in fact, that these judges were unconstitutional, but provide a remedy that doesn't cause disruption? So was there any Q&A, any exchange between a justice and a lawyer that struck you? Well, they they did seem to be <laughs> spent a lot more time on administrative law, and they seem to be kind of concerned about what are the implications for this? What would happen? Could they rule one way and just throw havoc all over the place? Or could they come up with a very narrow finding that would rule, in fact, that these judges were unconstitutional, but provide a remedy that doesn't cause disruption. And so there's a lot of discussion about what can we do, what can't we do, differentiating the patent review judges from some roles in other agencies and and concern about if they rule something very narrow for the patent office, would that kind of cause havoc with other agencies as well? It was a wide-ranging hearing. Um, They were uh, trying to give it kind of at a 10,000-foot view of what does it mean to be a principal officer versus an inferior officer? And then on a more narrow side, what does it mean about the patent office because they have a, some kind of unique rules and re- unique policies that have been around for even predating the creation of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board? How did the Federal Circuit, which handles patents, rule on this? The Federal Circuit had ruled that they were unconstitutionally appointed, but said that the way of dealing with this issue is merely to take away some of the civil service rights of these judges to essentially make them at-will employees that are more easily fired by the director instead of civil service rules. It didn't appear that the Supreme Court justices really were willing to go along with it. And, and of course, we know that the Supreme Court only takes Federal Circuit cases when they want to overturn the Federal <laughs> Circuit. It's not like you have, you know, conflict between the circuits. It's just the Federal Circuit. Right. And they have a very bad record before the Supreme Court. <laughs> they do. They do. So we assume that they're going to somehow say that the Federal Circuit got it wrong. But are they going to say that the Federal Circuit got it wrong in determining that they were principal officers? Or are they going to say that the Federal Circuit got it wrong in terms of the remedy? And it seemed like they were leaning towards the Federal Circuit got it wrong on the remedy, and we have a different remedy that would solve the problem. Apple, Intel, Cisco, Microsoft, Oracle, Samsung, who are they backing? All of the tech companies are saying that these are inferior officers, as they say, that these guys are totally on the up and up, that their rules are appropriate and do not disturb the PTAB because of the fact that they're within the patent office and they're saying, did we get it right or did we get it wrong? And that's the role that they have and that there's nothing wrong with the patent office doing that, that the director sets the policy and they're following the policy, but they are looking at what the agency does. They point out that, in fact, there have been procedures to review issued patents that have been going on forever, and nobody's ever complained until now, mainly because this is such a fast-track proceedings that does have a relatively high rate of invalidation. 
Now, where does the Biden administration stand? Well, the Solicitor General has come down on the idea that they, too, are worried about disturbing this procedure and disturbing this board that has been around since 2012 that was specifically set up because there were concerns that the Patent Office had been issuing too many bad patents, that they had been basically too easy on some of these applications. So they, are too, are very concerned of what's going to happen if the, if the Supreme Court says, no, these are unconstitutionally appointed officers and they have to go through principal, they have to go through Senate confirmation, and it's going to just disrupt the whole system. And they do not want that system disrupted. If they just rule that, you know, these judges are principal officers, they need presidential appointment and Senate confirmation, would that shut down the whole thing? Well, that's certainly what a lot of patent owners would like. Um, <laughs> and it does seem that they would it would shut it down at least temporarily. There's um, There was one, a note that there was like 750 cases pending before the, the review board right now. Um, but it would shut it down. But But many people point out that it would merely take one sentence from Congress to change it in light of, you know, similar to what they did in December with the trademark law uh, and just merely saying that the director has the authority to reconsider, modify, or set aside these decisions. And and so if they were to do that, that that would solve the problem. Um, as one of the, the uh, lawyers that I spoke to um, about this case pointed out, though, it's much easier to, to change trademark law. Once you start as he phrased it, tinkering under the hood of patent law, then people start coming out of the woodwork. So the question is whether the Supreme Court would say, well, we're going to kind of follow what the Congress did with the trademark law, giving the director greater authority to review these these decisions, um, or are they going to say, Congress, you have to take that action, which would cause more disruption. And just tell us what happened the last time there was a challenge at the Supreme Court. I'm sure other people keep track of these cases much better than I have, but there are just been constant, constant, constant challenges of the PTAB and how it rules and how it's set up. So basically, the Supreme Court has upheld the proceedings, the ability for the Patent Office to review its own decisions. In other cases, um, it has said it's kind of tinkered at the at the rules. For instance, there was one decision that said. Oh, if a if a challenger petitions to challenge five claims of a patent, you don't have the authority to say we're only going to look at one of those claims. You have to look at all five of them. Um, they've had other rules that say, well, you know, the you can't. Um, there's limitations on who can file appeals and and who can uh, petition uh, to have these patents challenged. So they've tinkered at the edges a little bit, but bottom line is they have previously, on the very high level, said that, yes, the Patent Office has the authority to review these issued patents. Give us a little bit of background on the board and how it came to be known as the Patent Death Squad. When the Patent Trial and Appeal Board first started, they were kind of operating on the policy or under the assumption that Congress wanted them to invalidate more patents, that that was their role. And so there was a very, very high rate, some 70 80 percent, of times that they would invalidate the patents. Former chief judge of the federal circuit, Randall Rader, was the one who coined the term death squad because he said, you know, this is unfair to patent owners. The patent office kind of took that to heart. The judges took that to heart. So the invalidation rate is much lower than it used to be. And it it is kind of one of those, you know, depending on how you cut the numbers is what what the numbers look like. 
but they have been, they have established a number of rules that kind of give patent owners a little bit more of a fair shake. But still, the overall, because the patent office is looking at basically grading its own work, and you know what it's like when you go back and you see what you did a, a year ago, hindsight, and you say, oh, I missed this, I missed that. There is still a very high rate of invalidation. So patent owners really hate it. They're like, we got this issued patent. We know that the examiners have expertise. Uh, the patents are presumed to be valid when they go to court. And that right has been taken away for us. And that's because there's no presumption of validity at the PTAB. The tech companies in particular really like the PTAB basically for the same reasons, but they are the ones that are more likely to be sued. And Apple um, has been more aggressive than any other. They've said that they've invalidated um, them 200 patents, but they've also filed more than a thousand petitions. I mean, they are the single most, uh, most user. Samsung, Google, Intel, all of these companies, very, very aggressive in challenging these patents. And if, if there's any way that they can reduce their litigation costs, they want to do it because they get sued an awful lot. So that's why they like the PTAB. Thanks for being on the show, Sue. That's Susan Decker, Bloomberg News patent reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for joining us. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.